Heavenly Father, you know that we are nothing, but Jesus has paid everything to redeem us. And so we are here on this Sabbath to confess his worthiness. And Lord, as we stand here on the very precipice of the preaching of your word, we pray that we would see Jesus. And as we see him, Lord, that something may awaken in our souls to want to be like him. Not just in life, not just in ministry, but in the home. We ask, Father, that your spirit may move upon not just the words that are spoken, but upon the hearts that hear them. Lord, that we may take it to heart and that we may be changed, that we may be a Christian in our hearts. Father, we are so grateful for what you will say to us. And Lord, we pray that you'll give us an obedient heart that would walk in your ways. This is our prayer. And we offer this prayer from our hearts in the mighty name of of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The title of my sermon is The Influence of the Home. Last night I introduced to them that we were going to go over three messages, starting with last night. Those of you who are not here, I'm so sorry that you couldn't make it. I know it was due to extreme medical conditions as to why you could not join us, but God was still able to reach you where you were. Amen. And so anyway, we were going to go through the three eyes. Right. So last night we talked about the initiation of the home. This morning we'll talk about the influence of the home. In the afternoon we'll talk about the interference of the home. And so I'd like to begin with a story about fishing. Man was telling a story. I've never been fishing before. I grew up in inner city Chicago and we have Lake Michigan right there. One of the biggest lakes in America and even in the world. But uh, I never went on that lake to go fishing. And so a man was talking about fishing and he said, you know, there's something you can learn from, fish, from fishing about life and about the news. And I said, what is that? And the man said, well, you know, when you start fishing, you know, you catch these big fish. You catch the mama fish, you catch the papa fish, you may catch the, the fully grown adult male fish, but he's not necessarily mated yet. But he says, one day when you go fishing and all of a sudden you bring up this little small fish you realize you're not catching parents anymore, you're catching children. And he says, when you know that all you have left in the pond is little baby fish and small fish, he says, you know the pond is almost empty. It is time to almost move on to another pond. This thought really struck me because when we look in society and we look on the news, it's one thing to have grown men killing people. It's one thing to have grown women pursuing individuals out of violence or revenge or jealousy. It's another thing when you begin to see young children committing crimes that years ago only adults committed. In America, we recently had an incident in Isla Vista, California. He was a student in his early 20s. He posted a YouTube video less than eight hours in advance of his killing spree and he began to introduce to the public Via YouTube, he said, I want you to know that tomorrow is the day of judgment. Tomorrow is the day of reckoning. For all of you girls that were not interested in me and you decided to give yourselves to these mindless brutes because he was an athletic young man, but he didn't respect you, he didn't care about you, I would have treated you well, but you didn't want me. For all those people who didn't want to be my friend, as I went to this university for four years and not one person sought to befriend me or to encourage me, 
So he decided that he would kill everything in sight. And he did. Killed both of his roommates. They had a friend visiting, stabbed them all in their sleep. Then he went out into the town. As soon as he got in the car, the first person crossing the street, he hit them with the car. Then he began to fire into a local snack shop, killed a young man who was just coming from class to get some juice. And all because of this man says, because girls didn't, weren't interested in him, that he wanted to be interested in him. But you can go even younger, and you have two 12-year-old girls in America that decided to plot the murder of their best friend. At first, they decided they were going to duct tape her and stab her to death, but they decided, you know what, we're going to lure her into the woods. And then we're going to plan this, and they had about 10 knives in their backpack from their parents' kitchen. And as they led this friend, they began to attack their friend in response to a mythical character called Slender Man because they wanted to get into his good graces, a video series they were watching on YouTube. And they did carry out their heinous crime. Fortunately, their friend did not die. With 17 stab wounds, she crawled out of the woods onto a biking trail, and a biker just so happened to be passing by and took her to the hospital. But we can go even younger. When you have two 10-year-old girls who planned to kidnap and sexually assault an autistic classmate, a young boy from their school, and they succeeded, but they didn't want to subdue him with knives or weapons or guns. They decided to use sharp stones. And you're thinking to yourself, the question that immediately comes to your mind is you know that the pond is almost empty when these kind of crimes are coming into the minds of 12-year-old girls. You used to think you got to worry about your sons. They're not gentle. They got to learn how to control their strength. But now we're talking about young girls, not just young boys. Not just 15, not just 21, but 12, but 10. And the question that we all ask when we look at these news reels is where were their parents? How did you get 10 knives from your mom's kitchen and she didn't know? How is it that you're watching a mythical character who's about horror films, who's telling you about killing young kids in ways that he's done it, and your mom has no clue because you know what? There seems to be a problem in the home because you know the pond is almost empty. And what is the problem that's here is because mom is so stressed out, she just wants to leave her kids in front of YouTube. The dad is so overwhelmed, he's tired from work. Just leave your kids on the television. Let them watch whatever on their iPods because I just need my own time. I just need my own space. I just need some mental peace. But the common denominator in all of these crimes, in every situation, in every atrocity that hits our society, that hits our world, there is one common denominator is that they all came from a home. They all had a mama and a papa. They all had a daddy. They all had a grandmother at some point in time. They came from a home. And so the Bible says in our scripture reading, turn there with me to Proverbs chapter 4. The Bible says, through the wise men, giving counsel to continue to speak to us for ages. The wise man reminds us of something that he says can cure all the issues of life. The Bible says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. The first thing that Solomon wants us to know is that the issues of life 
They come and are dependent upon whether we respect or we neglect the heart. You see, we can start off with the human being himself or herself. That Solomon looks at you and he looks at me and he says, listen, every issue in your life and in mine, it comes from the heart. And therefore, the issue that we are grappling with today is about do we respect or do we neglect the keeping of the heart? The heart is the metropolis of a man. If you can conquer this, conquering their eyes, conquering their hands is no difficult task. If I can get to your heart and rule right here inside your mind, there's no wonder I can get you to say any unkind thing to your wife or to your children. It is no wonder because I've conquered the very metropolis of who you are, the very citadel of what it means to be a man. It has already been conquered by some other power. And he says, if you don't keep the heart, this is where all the issues of life come. But you see, he's using the heart not just as a citadel, not just as a metropolis or a key critical city inside of a nation. He is using the heart as a symbol of a reservoir of water. The ways by which water is disseminated into the public. And you and I both know that if the water was poisoned or polluted, society would have a huge problem. There's only so much bottled water. There's only so many places you can go to say, well, maybe we can import some extra water. But if the water supply in England became polluted, if all of a sudden it became corrupted, poisoned, to drink it is to drink death. Then you ask yourself the question, what is the reservoir in need of? What is England in need of? So when people look at man, when they look at society, you'll get these people who are moralists. They don't want to believe in Christianity, but they want to believe that human beings can live holy, godly, kind, loving lives. So they'll say, well, if England, you know, the water is corrupted, can you imagine a man coming on the news in BBC and say, you know, the water is poisoned, it's polluted. You know what we need? The problem is we need some new pipes to be installed. And everyone would know watching that newscast that this man doesn't know what's going on. Can you say amen? amen. New pipes don't change poison water. But you see, when we say a man is in need of new principles, when a man is in need of new channels to operate and control his life, better time management, what you're saying is he just needs new pipes. But the problem is not the pipes. The problem is the water itself is poisoned. But you see, there's another brother that comes on BBC and he says, no, no, man's not in need of new pipes. He's in need of a new engineer, someone to control the flow of the water. You see, the problem is it's too much water flowing to certain parts of England. You would look at the newscast, you say, this man doesn't understand the problem. It is not new pipes and it's not a new engineer. Whoever turns the switch on and off makes no difference to the fact that the water is what? Poisoned. It is polluted. But we will sit and say, well, man is in need of education. Man is in need of better understanding. Brothers and sisters, if you give a wicked man more knowledge, he just knows how to do more wickedness. This is why our homes are messed up. Because we push education, but we don't push righteousness. You will pay the University of London 20,000 pounds a year to teach your child music, but the preacher comes to give them Bible studies, that should be free. And he'll be burning in hell with his London education. Be weeping at the altar, oh, pray for my son, he's lost, he's not coming to the Lord. I wonder why. Because the emphasis was on education, not spirituality. We taught him to revere Einstein above Jesus. 
and say, this is the goal. We taught them to look at Ronaldo, not Christ. Oh, you know, you got a future in football. Build up his sports ability. He's just in need of understanding. A new engineer to turn the water on and off, but that doesn't change the fact that the water is poison. But you get even more people. Someone else comes on the news and says, you know what it is? We need a better engine to pump the water out to the people of England. This is those people who say man just needs to understand the power of the will. He needs to recognize he can pull himself up by the bootstraps and live a whole. You just need to decide. Brothers and sisters, the will is important. It is important that we make a decision because we recognize the road to hell is paved with good intentions. There's a lot of people that are going to be lost hoping and desiring to be Christians. But the problem is they didn't decide to be a Christian. But you see, there's a deeper issue at stake. The problem is not the engine pumping the water. The problem is the water itself. This is the problem. So then you look at the fact and you say you just need to decide. You just need to understand your God potential. You get these new age people. You need to release the potential inside your heart. And therefore you will go. No, no, no. The only thing inside of your heart is poison water. You see what Solomon is recognizing for us is that the reservoir of man, the reservoir of the church, the reservoir of society, the reservoir of the nation is poisoned. The problem is not new engineers. The problem is not new people to switch it on and off. It's not a new engine. It's not new pipes. The problem is we need new water. The water itself is poisoned. And this is how he describes the heart of man. And as a result, when you and I look at where these individuals came from who committed these crimes at such young ages, we must recognize what is the heart of society. What is the heart of the church? You see, when we come down, and I've been an elder in the church for many years. I've overseen church plants, spoken at many churches across the world through the privilege of God. And you go to churches and you wonder to yourself, you sit on a church board meeting thinking, are these people converted? And you know where their issues come from. It didn't come from the church. It came from the house. Then you come and you say, when it's youth day, some people are like, I don't come to church on that day. You don't know what the worship will look like. And you wonder where that came from. It didn't come from the church. It came from the home. As I said last night in our message, children don't raise themselves. Somebody raised them. And all of a sudden, when someone comes and says, Pastor, can you talk to my son? He doesn't really want to come to church. He's not really interested in God. And I say it time and time again. Sister, brother, you cannot expect me to undo 18 years of bad training in 18 minutes. It ain't going to happen. Those habits are strong. They've been there for a long time. But we want to think, give my son, bring him to this youth day, bring him to this youth event. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit can't work. I'm not saying he can't transform a man or a woman's life in a moment of time if the heart is tender and willing to surrender to the pleadings of the Spirit. That can happen and it will happen to people every day. But please don't make no mistake, the devil has strongholds in people's lives. And they were built in the home brick by brick, day by day. Gate by gate. You see, go to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2. 1 Samuel, chapter 2. To understand that 
If keeping the heart is the key, the question now becomes, what is the heart of the church? What is the heart of society? 1 Samuel chapter 2. When you're there, you can say amen. 1 Samuel chapter 2. The Bible says in verse 12. Are you there? The Bible says, now the sons of Eli were what? Corrupt. Because they what? What does your Bible say? They did not know the Lord. Do you know who Eli is? Eli is the what? He's not just the priest. He's the high priest. He's the GC president. And as a result, his sons are now leading in the priesthood. If you look in 1 Samuel chapter 1 in verse 3, the Bible tells you this man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of who? Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. What were they? The priests of the Lord. So let me get this straight. The Bible says here is Eli and his sons. And you see Eli is the high priest. His sons are Hophni and Phinehas. And they, the Bible says in 1 Samuel 2, verse 12, that they were corrupt. They were corrupt because they didn't know the Lord, but they were in church. They were not only in church, they were serving in church. They were attending and conducting annual feasts and ceremonies, but there was corruption. And you ask yourself this question, how many parents are like Eli? They want their kids in church. They want them serving in church, but they don't know the Lord. Just like Eli, and you say, now, how were these issues coming into Israel? How was it that all these problems came and you said, why is it that these young men, and I want you to notice this in 1 Samuel chapter 2, because you won't believe it. Look in verse 13 through 17. The Bible says, and the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pen or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came. Also, before they burned the fat, which is against the Levitical law, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, give meat for roasting to the who? To the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first because he knows what the Bible says. Then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it how? By force. These young men who were priests of the Lord were taking from God's offerings. Can you imagine people came to bring offerings to be reconciled with Jesus? Because they had sinned, because they wanted peace with God. And when they came in penitence, in a desire to be reconciled with Jesus, the priest said, you know what? I'm going to take some of your offering for myself before you even bring it to God. These people are stealing from the tithes and offerings. These people are stealing from the donations. Oh, yes, we have a church building fund, and that's been going on for 10, 20 years, but the building has never come. But where's the money? That's where you got Hophni and Phinehas out the gate. Trust me, I've been in many churches. 
And let's pray to God that's not happening here. But the Bible goes on to say in verse 22, it says, Now Eli was very old and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel. And how they, listen to what the Bible says, how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So here you have the priests. There are women that come to bring mirrors and different things for the offerings and to pray at the temple. And the Bible says the priests were sleeping with these women who were dedicating their lives to Christ. In the temple. And the Bible says Eli had no problem with his sons being in church. He was just happy that his sons were in church, that they were serving the Lord. But the Bible says they were corrupt and they didn't know God. I'm all about young people. I'm all about them being used by God, being involved in the mission of Christ, taking ownership of their church, but only if they're converted. We should not give the church to young people because they are young. We should give the church to young people because they're converted, because they're committed, because they love Jesus first, even above mom and dad, even above their friends, even above all others. Those are the young people you want to lead your church. Those are the ones that need to be conducting youth days, not because they're talented. And I've said this when I preached in Sheffield a week ago. We confuse giftedness with spirituality. Just because someone can sing don't mean they know the Lord. Just because someone can speak doesn't mean he knows the Lord. He can still be corrupt. Just because they know how to organize or they're very charismatic and they make us smile on Sabbath morning. That is not a rep. It's not a. It's not a replacement. It's not an illustration of godliness. And with Eli, Hophni, and Phineas, we say, what is the heart of the church? When the reservoir is poisoned, we think, oh, let's put them in priestly robes, change the pipes. Let's have them sing on the praise team. Let's have them play the piano. Let's have them come up and do scripture reading. Let's have them teach the youth Sabbath school or cradle roll or to be involved in organizing outreach. All we're saying is new engine, new pipe, new person to switch it on and off. We just need a new youth leader. No, no, no. The problem is the water. The reservoir is polluted. And from this, the rest of the church receives its water. You see, brothers and sisters, the home is the heart of the church. The home is the heart of society. The home is the heart of the nation. This is the reservoir through which everything else flows. And therefore, if this thing is poisoned and corrupt, and people are thinking, our problem is better schools. Nope. It's not the problem. You've never heard a politician come on and say the problem is the home. No, no, we need better insurance. We need better physicians, better professors, better teachers. We forget something that I want to quote. Go back there to Proverbs chapter 4. I'm winding down in a little bit. Proverbs chapter 4. The Bible says there in verse 23, something that we might have missed the first reading. It says, keep your heart with all diligence. What that phrase means is keep this above everything else. 
We're not saying don't have good schools. We're not saying don't have good youth programs or good youth leaders. We're not saying don't have all these things. But above all of these, what you should keep is the heart. What you should keep is the home. But you see, we have a big problem with this. Because when we look at the condition of our homes, we're wondering to ourselves, if the problem is in the family, it's in marriages, if it's in the homes, then how are we supposed to change this? We look at it and we say, man, you don't understand how much work needs to happen in my house. You don't understand how many problems and how deep the river flows in my house. You don't understand how much poison and pollution is in my family. It will take some serious work. But you see, the problem is we will never see the results as long as we let people skate by. You know, I used to tell young girls before. They would come and they would say, you know, they'd, they'd be mad at their boyfriends. They say, you know, my problem with him is he's not a spiritual leader and he's not this and he's not that. And my question to them is very simple. Was he a spiritual leader when you started dating him? She said, no. Was he very kind when you started dating him? No. So why are you surprised? When you started dating him, what you basically told him was, it doesn't matter if you're spiritual, I'll still be with you. But if you want the man to really change, and you say, well, I'm going to marry him, I'm going to change him, I'm going to encourage him. I know that in his heart he really wants to serve God. That's what he told you. Have you crying in your dress? Oh, man, he's really spiritual. He really wants to serve the Lord. Don't be fooled. Because if you really want to encourage him to serve Jesus, then you let him know, I won't date you until you are this man. What that communicates to him is the fact that you are not godly, that you don't know the Lord, that excludes you from consideration. And therefore, now he has a real motivation to pursue it. But as long as you're with him, he's thinking, well, she's with me. So obviously that wasn't that big of a deal. In the same sense with the church, the Bible is clear on the standards of elders. It says, if a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how shall he rule the house of God? But we elect people because he's a doctor, because he's given the most tithe, because he's a good Sabbath school teacher. He knows all the doctrines. He's a theologian. That is not a basis. That's good that he can do those things. But the Bible says he should not be given to filthy lucre. He should not be given to wine. And his house better be in order. You know how many elders need to step down based on those qualifications? People be looking, they say, Sebastian, that's too radical. Well, that's too bad. I run an organization, and one of the words is radical. And in this sense, he say, well, who would be the elders of the church? I said, that would be my point. But at least you know if someone is the elder, he's really supposed to be there. But when you got this thing, oh, husband of one wife, but this person's got multiple women, step down. You got this brother, oh, his house is completely out of order, but we say, hey, man, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. Listen, I didn't write the stipulations. The Bible wrote the stipulations. And so we sit down and we say, we let these people skate on by, continue to serve in the church, and then we expect them to change? Because all of a sudden, he's so consumed with being an elder, so consumed with being a Sabbath school teacher, no time to change those things. Just trying to be faithful to God. But you see, there is a solution to this problem. There is an answer to the reservoir, and that is the issue of changing the water. But you see, there's a problem. Because if the heart of the church 
If the heart of society, if the heart of the nation is the home, there becomes a really big problem because the home is run by a certain individual. And therefore, if this is the case, I want to read to you a statement from Ministry of Healing. It says, the restoration and uplifting of humanity begins in the home. The work of parents underlies every other work. Society is composed of families. We know that. And it is what the heads of families make it. Out of the heart are the issues of life. And the heart of the community, of the church, and of the nation is the household. The well-being of society, the success of the church, the prosperity of the nation depends upon home influences. In other words, society, the church, is what the heads of families make it. That means there's one person responsible. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis 18, the Bible tells us that God decides to reveal something to Abraham. It says in verse 16, as God came down and visited Abraham's tent and he's leaving, it says, then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Can you imagine? I think to myself as a husband and as a father, who would not want the honor of God to say, shall I hide this thing from Sebastian? What I am doing. What man does not want to know what the divine movements are in the world? Some people are getting their information from BBC or CNN. Abraham's getting his information from God himself. He says, shall I hide this thing that I am doing? Verse 18, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be what? Blessed in him. Why? Verse 19, for I know him. For I know him that he will command his household after himself. In other words, God is saying, I don't judge Abraham based upon the fact that he left the Ur of the Chaldees. He doesn't say, shall I hide this thing from Abraham? Abraham has given so much to follow me. He doesn't base this on Abraham's faith that he could have a son, even though his wife is barren and he is well stricken in years. He doesn't say, shall I hide this thing from Abraham, seeing he has such great faith. He doesn't say, shall I hide this thing from Abraham because he's so godly. No, he says, shall I hide this thing from Abraham because I know him and I see who he is in his home. In other words, the judge of a man is not what he is in society. It's not what he is in the university. It's not what he is in his profession. God does not judge Abraham on all of those things. He judges Abraham on one criteria, and that is, what is he in his home? A man is exactly what he is in his home. He's not what he is in church. That's why people come and they say, oh, you know, if they say, Brother Sebastian, I appreciated your sermon. I don't judge myself by the hype. I learned very early on from my spiritual mother, Sebastian, don't believe the hype. When you want to know who you are and where you are with God, look at your family. Look at your wife, look at your kids, look at your finances, look at all these things, and then ask yourself, who am I? 
Because that's how God judges you. So therefore, when you judge yourself based on the home, and I've told this to many people, when we organize events like these, and we're so concerned about the youth of the church, we got conference calls, we got meetings, we got committees. But I said, when's the last time you had a conference call about families? Hours and hours of planning. How are we going to get our kids closer to Christ? How are we going to plan for them to be radically devoted Christians? How can we build this? Ten-year plan. I saw in the pastor's office, four-year plan for this church. The question is, do we have a four-year plan for our families? Do we have a principle? Do we have a mission why this family exists? Do we have principles by which we're going to govern as a family? Documents on the wall. No, we do it for the church, but we don't do it for the home because we think we need to change the pipes. But the problem is the water. If we want those missions and those values to be kept in church, they have to be kept at home. No wonder children are running around the church can't sit still for a sermon. They don't sit still at home. And when are they having worship to sit still? When are they having worship to learn to pray? When are they having worship to understand this is time, this is time for Jesus. You need to be reverent. But we want to wait till they're 18 and tell them to sit down. Too late. Too late. And now we're wondering why these people are going around misrepresenting the church. And I just tell people, don't tell people you're Adventists. Because you're not. Just because your name's on the books doesn't mean anything. People don't even have the integrity to say, take my name off the books. They want to wait till you're this fellowship. They want to wait till it gets so bad that people are like, you have to go. But if you have any kind of integrity and sense of honesty in your heart, you say, I'm not living up to these things. I know that I don't care about the three angels' messages. I don't care about revelation. I don't care about the second coming of Christ. I'm not living my life as if Jesus is coming soon. So why leave your name on the register? Why go tell people that you're Adventist? Then when I go preach to them, they say, I met an Adventist guy. He did this and this and this to my sister. And you're thinking to yourself, he wasn't Adventist. But in their mind, he was. He goes to that church. He even told my sister about the Sabbath. I mean, the devil is a liar, man. <laughs> Have people educating people about the true day of worship while they're having sex outside of marriage. I'm going to tell you about the Sabbath, but you ain't going to tell her about the seventh commandment. You're keeping the wrong day. Rather than you're just doing the wrong thing. Abraham left us an example. To say the answer is to understand who is the one who runs the reservoir. Who's the one in charge? And there's three things you have to keep important about the reservoir. I got to hurry up and get through these points. The first thing is, if you want the reservoir... To continue to serve its purpose, you have to keep the reservoir full of water. Amen? You run out of water, it doesn't matter if it's pure water. If it's empty, it ain't going to help anybody. What do I mean by this? That means you got to keep the reservoir in contact, constantly receiving something fresh from God. If there's no way to keep this thing pure, there's no way to keep our families pure without Jesus. Can you say amen? amen. There's only one way to keep our homes secure to keep it pure, without evil, without poison, without pollution from the things of the world. That's to have Christ in the home. That Jesus needs to become a household name. Not just the label that we wear. Not just I was born Adventist. God doesn't have grandchildren. 
You are not born Adventist. You have to be converted. You got to make a decision to follow Jesus. So in this sense, it is important that we make sure we keep the reservoir full, constantly in communion with Jesus. The number one problem in our churches is our families are not having family worship. We are not having time with our kids, and I don't care how old they are. You see, the Bible says in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. How would they be blessed? Through his family. And you know who came through his family? Jesus. Do you recognize that every person is saved because of Abraham's family? And why was his family this way? Because he commanded it after himself. In other words, he was exactly what he wanted his family to become. Tell people, stop trying to practice what you preach. Just preach what you practice. Don't preach it if you're not practicing. Then you won't have a problem with your kids saying, my mom's a hypocrite. My dad's a hypocrite. Well, just preach what you practice. You won't have that problem. But I can't tell my kids, stop doing this and I'm doing it. There's a story about Gandhi. A woman came up to Gandhi and said, Gandhi, can you tell my son to stop eating candy? Gandhi said, come back in two weeks. She said, okay. So two weeks later, she brought her son back. She said, okay, Gandhi, can you tell my son to stop? He turned to the boy and said, stop eating candy. Then the boy said, okay, and ran off. And the woman was confused. You couldn't have done that two weeks ago? He says, I had to stop eating candy. <laughs> Give me two weeks. <laughs> I'm not going to tell your son to stop eating candy when I'm eating candy. Can you say amen? amen? Jesus can't tell us, go and sin no more when he's sinning. He told the woman, go and sin no more because he's not sinning. But if we're going to other people to our kids, son, you need to give this up for God. What are we giving up for God? There's no power in words when there is no life to back it up. We need to stop depending on the stories of someone else and in a Sabbath school lesson. I need to have my own stories for my kids. When I tell you to trust Jesus, I know you can trust him. How do you know, Papa, that you can trust? Let me tell you a story. I've been on the road with no money. You don't remember. I grew up poor. I slept on a bed with seven people. That's not how you sleep. And got to this point through faith. You came into the world with your own bed. So you don't remember. But if you don't have your own stories where you've tested and proved Jesus to be true. Then we're using, oh, let me tell you the story from the Sabbath school lesson. We need current stories. We need to have lives that validate the stories of the Bible for our kids. Listen, son, when I tell you about obedience, I'm telling you from my own experience. Mom did not follow the commandments of God. And look where I ended up. Dad did not follow the principles of the Bible. Look where I ended up. You see, our family is in shambles because I didn't do it God's way. But we don't have, we got too much pride to just tell our kids we made a mistake. And then by the time it's too late. They say, why didn't you tell me that when I first came to you? Too much pride. We don't want to tell our kids and say, listen, your mom and dad are not perfect, as if they don't already know. <laughs> kids know sooner than we do. They're telling their friends all the time, man, my dad got nerve, man. He told me this. He's doing the same thing. Get off of YouTube. Dad, I saw you watching the same show with girls in bikinis, but you're trying to tell me about pornography. What's the difference? 
You reading magazines with half-naked women? What do you expect? Dad's always got an excuse why he can't make it to family worship. He's working too hard. Why can't I go to school? No, son, you got to wake up to go to worship. Dad, you ain't got to be there. Abraham commanded his household after himself. In other words, it rests upon us as men and heads of families and homes. We got no one else to blame. No one else to blame. But you see, there's a possibility of the power of this. There's a story that I read about a man. This is a true story. I'm not making this up. And I said, man, this is beautiful what the potential is if we do things Jesus' way. Because not only do we have to keep the reservoir full, we have to keep it pure. So this couple in America, they were supporting this orphanage in Romania. And as they were supporting this orphanage in Romania, they were donating money and they decided, because they couldn't have children, the wife was barren, they said, maybe we should adopt one of these kids. So as they decided to fly over to Romania, the wife grabbed her Romanian Bible to bring. And they were walking around the orphanage and they were wondering who should they have. And there was this young boy named George. George had a mom and he knew who his mom was, but George had no arms. And because George had no arms, his mom was afraid that he was cursed. So she didn't want him around her other children. She thought their arms would fall off. So she put him in an orphanage. And she would go see him every once in a while. This is the superstition that exists in some places in the world. So this couple walks in and the people said, well, do you want considerations for different kinds of children you can adopt? And they said, no, no, we'll just look around. And as they started walking around, they said, oh, this boy is very bright. His English is perfect. He'll be great in America. They said, no, no, that's all right. We just want to look around. She kept trying to push children on them. After a while, the wife said, please, can we just have a look around? We've given hundreds of dollars to this orphanage. I just want to look around. <laughs> said, fine, look around. They came into the cafeteria, and they saw a young boy, George, with no arms, sitting in the corner by himself because none of the kids would sit with him, not even the staff. They put his food on the chair in front of him so he could just push his face into the bowl. No one would even feed him with no arms. So as they saw this boy, they said to themselves, you know what, we should adopt him. Because they're Christian people. And they said, of all the ones that people would not want us to choose, we want this one. So the, head, the headmaster said, well, I have to call the mother. She still knows about him. So it went to the mom. The mom came into the orphanage. They sat down and the mom said, why do you want to adopt my son? They said, well, you know, we really think that we can give him a good home. And it's unfortunate he's so isolated. And she says, you guys are from America, aren't you? He said, yeah, we're from Connecticut. Why? She says, I know about you American people. You want my son because he has no arms. You want to run all these tests upon him and teach him like, treat him like a lab animal? And they said, no, 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 no. You have us all confused. We're not trying. She says, yes, you are. I know it. And so they're arguing. The husband is going back and forth with the mom and the translator. And then finally, the wife pulls out her Romanian Bible. And she says, you know what? She turns to Psalm 139. She pushes the Bible over to the woman. And she says, I want to teach your son this. And the woman looked down and it said, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what I want to teach your son. So then she said, she just started crying. 
She says, if you want to teach my son this, then you can have him. So they brought George back to America, but you can imagine they didn't want him walking around outside. You can't trust kids on the street. So they said, you know, we can't really let him out to play. We're afraid of kids making fun of him. So if they finally got an idea, they say, you know what? We're going to have him have a cello teacher. So they called this woman. They said, we want you to give our son cello lessons. The teacher had no idea what she was in for. She walked in and saw the kid had no arms. And they said, we know this is a little different, but please, he needs something to do. And we want, you know, we just believe maybe you could teach him. So she taught him to hold the bow with one foot, hold the cello with the other leg. And so he's getting these lessons until he was about 12 years old. At 12 years old, the teacher said to the parents, he's ready for a recital. They said, I don't know about this. Not in public. She said, trust me, George is ready. So they went to the recital, but his name wasn't on the program, just in case the parents decided to back out last minute. So after this child performed, then all of a sudden, the teacher walks out with George, no arms. The whole audience is silent. They're thinking to themselves, the cello, no arms. You could hear a pin drop. They sat down. The parents, their hands were like sweating. They're thinking, this is a bad idea. The wife is like, we shouldn't have done this. We should not have done this. He's going to be embarrassed. He's going to never want to come out again. And they said, the dad said, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. But his hands are sweating. He said his heart was racing as well. So as George sits down, he looks at the teacher, picks up the cello with one leg, picks up the bow with the other foot. The teacher nods. He starts playing all the wrong notes. George turns bright red. The teacher says, stop. This kid is so embarrassed. Then she looks at him and she says, again. He picks up the bow, plays the music perfectly. When he was done, you had a standing ovation. Not a dry eye in the room. And when you look at this home, George now, you can Google this for yourself. He can play the guitar, he can play the violin and the cello with his feet. He's in symphony orchestras. And you're thinking to yourself, the family that came into this understood what the home was all about. That when you hear this story, how can you not be inspired? How can you not be moved? How can you not go home to yourself and say, you know what? I want to go home and teach my children that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. That every lack in their lives, whether it be arms, whether it be height, whether it be knowledge or intelligence, you can say, listen, this is not a disadvantage. This is an advantage to you. You look at Oscar Pistorius. This man's in the Olympics. He doesn't even have legs. My legs function, and I'm thinking there's no way I could be in the Olympics because you won't train. But this man is in the Olympics running with no legs because someone taught him he was fearfully and wonderfully made. And if we decide in our homes, this is what our families can be, and this is what the church can be filled with. People who come to church, who recognize their brokenness, who know that they have issues, but they know at home, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365, there's a mom, there's a dad, there's someone telling them, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Don't ever forget that. And everything you think is a hindrance is actually a blessing. It can be used for the glory of God. Watching a person play the cello with their hands is amazing. Watching someone play it with their feet, 
is moving. You think to yourself, what am I doing with my perfectly good arms? What am I doing with my perfectly good arms? When you see blind people playing the piano, it's a rebuke. And we're like, oh, I stopped having piano lessons. It's too difficult. There's no way I can do this. And you're thinking, this person can't even see. They can't even read music. But someone taught them, fearfully and wonderfully made. Brothers and sisters, we have a wonderful opportunity. If we learn to keep the heart with all diligence. If we learn to keep the home and bring these principles into our homes to say, this is what I want to teach my wife, that she's fearfully, wonderfully made. This is what I want to teach my daughter and my son. This is what I want to teach my parents. As a child, my presence in the home with my mom is to teach my mom the exact same thing. When you have a family like this, what do you think the church will be filled with? You don't have to worry about mean-hearted members. You don't have to worry about people going off and people in board meetings. You don't have to worry if people are going to be rude in Sabbath school and cut you off. Because at home, they learned. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. I have to conclude. It's already after one. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. This morning, I want to make an appeal. I'm going to ask my wife to come up. I want to make an appeal. You can bow your heads and close your eyes. This is between you and God, because I don't want people looking around saying, who's responding or who's coming? You say, listen, this very morning, there's one individual that is responsible for the failure of the home, and that is the father. That's where it all starts, and that's where it stops. And my dad told me at a very young age, the difference between a boy and a man is you don't have to tell a man to take out the trash. He does it because it needs to be done. And as long as you need someone to tell you what needs to be done, you're still a boy. And this morning, I'm making a call for men. Men who are saying, no longer am I waiting on my wife or my church, or some preacher to tell me what I know needs to be done. I'm going to do it because it needs to be done. And is there some man who has actually the courage to actually stand up and say, you know what, just like Joshua, I don't care what else is going on in church. I don't care what else is going on in society, but as for me and my house, we're going to be serving the Lord. If there is such a man, I want to invite you to come to the altar right here with me. And I'm already standing because I've already made this commitment. Because in order to be a real man in our families, it takes courage. It's not a thankless thankless job. And my dad said, nobody thanks you for what you're supposed to be doing. No pat on the back. No men's Sabbath just to say, look, I got a wife. I got kids or whatever it is. And I'm making a decision today. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. If you're not coming, you need to be praying. We always want to look and see who's coming up for the appeal. I know such and such needs to hear this because I'm coming for the women next. But it starts with the men who say it's time for me to step up in my home and recognize I'm the priest.
I'm supposed to bring the word of God to my family. But if I'm not keeping the reservoir full, I ain't got nothing to say. Because I'm not with the Lord. I'm not in the Bible. I'm not praying. This church is a representation of what we make it as men. The heads of families. And when we decide to bring the same principles in the church into our homes, then the church will be changed. Is there anyone else that says, you know what? As a man, I recognize as the head of my home, as the head of my family, as a grandfather or an uncle, whatever it is, the oldest son, you say, listen, no more of this. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is what it's going to be. I'm going to invite my wife to come as I make another appeal. And that is to recognize the fact that these men are supposed to be supported by women. Not overshadowed, not overstepped, not put down, not embarrassed, not constantly reminded of their faults and their imperfections, but supported. Constantly encouraged. Because women always complain there's no men in the church, but it's hard to stay in the church when no one's there to encourage you. No one wants to affirm your position and your role in the home. No one wants to keep and help you keep your home sacred. They just want to remind you, you should have done this. You should have said this. And so as a result, I wonder if there are women in this church that say, you know what? I haven't been supporting the men of this church the way that I ought to have been. And this morning, Jesus, I'm praying that you would give me the courage, the humility, the spirit of Christ to support these men in their desire by coming up here to change the fundamentally way that their homes are raised. If there is such a woman, I want to invite you to stand to your feet. You say, I'm committing to support these men. I'm not going to discourage them. My goal is not to blast them or to embarrass them. But my goal is to affirm them. And when I see them trying, I'm not going to say that's not enough. I'm going to say keep going. And continue to teach us as your wives and as your daughters that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You say, I will support these men in their desire to do what God has called them to do, to transform the families of this church. Any other women that say, yes, I will support them. But my last invitation is for youth. Because as children, we also have a role in discouraging our parents. We don't make it easy to be a dad. We don't make it easy to be a mom. And maybe you know in your heart, I have not been to my parents what I know I ought to have been. But this morning, I see that I have a part to play. And as a young person, you want to stand to your feet and say, Lord, help me to be the blessing I'm supposed to be in the home. To encourage my dad, to encourage my mom in their role and their desire to bring Jesus into our home. If you're here as a young person and you want to make that commitment, I also invite you to stand. As a daughter, as a son. Say, I need to be more supportive. I need to be more encouraging. I need to be more affirming. I need to be forgiving. And you say, I'll support my parents. I'll support my parents. And I will encourage them. The only way this is going to be done is if we learn to trust in Jesus.
And so as she sings this song, I pray that you men who have come up front, that you would kneel with me as she sings this song. Because this is a consecration. And as we kneel together and she sings this song, we would be reminded, along with the women who are standing to say, it's only going to be if we learn to trust in Jesus. Because as men, we will fail if we do it in our own strength. It's only going to be through the power and the strength of Christ. So as she sings this song, I pray that it would be your prayer and that we would find it to be true in our experience. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.